I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Nehemiah chapter 3. On the surface, when you read Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm not going to pull any punches. It may seem like a dull text. I don't know that that's a great way to start a sermon out. There's a lot of things in here that are just plain old hard to pronounce. One study even suggests that it's just basically Nehemiah's project list, which does not make me really want to engage that deeply in it. I pulled out other commentators and One simply said, this is an accounting of Nehemiah's projects. It's not easy to preach, okay? Another spiritually allegorized each gate as it was rebuilt and tried to give a spiritual meaning to each one, and I thought that just sounds like hard work. Another one launched into the verses that mentioned men working near their houses and talked about building a Christian home, and I didn't even know where you get that in the context. One other commentary summarized chapter 3 in one sentence and moved on to chapter 4, which is what you'd like me to do this morning, but it's not going to happen. Another even went into taking the broad wall and said the church needs to be separated from the world. I don't think we have to over-spiritualize this in the sense of bricks and gates. I don't think we have to remove ourselves from the immediate context of this passage. The fact is, they're building a wall. The reality that emerges from a chapter like this within Scripture is that God is really good at remembering people's names. There are many chapters like this in Scripture. The fact is, passages such as this one should really encourage each of us. Because God hasn't forgotten our names either. It's the record of obscure people doing obscure tasks. And God loves faithfulness to the grind. That's not the most spectacular reality. That's probably not even a life-altering truth. But God loves faithfulness to the grind. And as these individuals were building the wall, which is exactly what they were doing, they were not doing it for themselves, They were not even joining in with Nehemiah in his cause. For as we have established in this study already, he has exhorted them and brought them along with this reality. This is God's work, and we must all do God's work together. What we see in this passage is that each of them needed help from each other. They couldn't do it alone. It's a great chapter about cooperation. If we looked into the New Testament, we'd even see these principles in the church in 1 Corinthians 12 or perhaps Romans chapter 12 where we're forced to see the church as the body of Christ. And we are made aware of the reality that we are many members brought together for one cause. We belong to each other. We bear each other's burdens. We help each other. And we can go into detail by using this passage of Scripture as an example that the church must work together. For the principle of Scripture is that the church is the ecclesia. It is a called out assembly of redeemed people who pull their resources together and their energies and their efforts together, commissioned to go back out into the world and to see as many people saved as they possibly can. And with that simple introduction, I'll take you now to verse 1. I could read all 32 verses. I won't do it. But as we read these first few verses, you'll note a trend that appears, and I'll emphasize it. 
And you'll note that as Nehemiah records this accounting and he pins these entries into his memoir, he, by God's inspiration, wants us to learn. Look in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Maah, they sanctified it, Unto the tower of Hananiel. And note these next three words. They are repeated throughout this chapter. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them builded Zachor the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build. Who also laid the beams thereof. And set up the doors thereof. The locks thereof. And the bars thereof. Emphasizing that in verse 3. The sons of Hassanah did a little bit more than those mentioned in verse 2. Now here is where it really explodes onto the scene. This is the verse that will change your life. It's verse 4. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. And next unto them repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabil. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Baana. Did you see it in there? How explosive that verse was. How life-altering it is. That's the only humor I'm going to give you on this rainy Sunday. That's Bible humor. Verse 5, though, there is something of note. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. And then get this phrase. But their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. This is simply an accounting of Nehemiah's project list. I can't shine it up any more than that. But the principles that are communicated in this are ministry and life-altering. Because we are aware that even as we gather together according to the scriptures this morning, we do so commissioned to reach a lost world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We do so with the awareness that we are not here to service ourselves. And we are not here as a part of some carnal empire. And we are not here because we have been coerced or compelled or compensated to be here. But we are here because we are a small part of God's work. We learn from the scriptures there are two things that you and I cannot say when we become Christians. The first is, you don't need me. And the second is, I don't need you. Because the reality is, you do need me, and I do need you. That's how God devised it to be. And as we take a look at these builders on the wall, we'll learn valuable lessons. The whole city, for 52 days, gives itself over to this mega construction project. And all these individuals come together from all different aspects and venues in life to join into what God is doing and working together. They will accomplish what not one of them could have done independently. Here's a simple lesson I see as I work through this. Willing builders work. Those that were willing to participate found that there was work to do. Willing builders work. As we work through these 32 verses, you'll note that there are priests that are mentioned. And professionals. There are people who are noble born from a royal caste. And there are those who are of common stock. Single men and single women are mentioned in this work. 
Professionals and politicians, native residents and outsiders, craftsmen and artists, they were all given the opportunity to work. In the first few verses, we meet priests. We see people from Jericho and Tekoa coming from outside districts into the city of Jerusalem to work. Some of these individuals would repair the wall that was closest to their home while others had to commute to other portions of the city to get to their assigned task. Some people repaired existing walls, simply had to put back into place some that was broken down. Other people were beginning completely from scratch. Some of them were working on different gates, and they were putting in the bars and the hinges and the locks and the bolts, while others had to pick up rubble and trash and simply carry it outside of the city. All of them, by the way, were volunteers. Nobody that we read of was conscripted to do this, and not one of them was paid for the work that they did. Some of them, as we established, were residents of Jerusalem. And as the walls were repaired, they would derive direct personal protection from it. But others were from outside cities, Jericho and Mizpah and Tekoa. And when the project was completed, they would go home from the city of Jerusalem and there was no personal benefit for them to participate in this task whatsoever. And when I read this and I understand that willing builders work, I derive a simple lesson that people like us need to learn. It is okay to serve God in a capacity that offers you no personal benefit. Do you realize that many people, if they dig down a few layers into their own heart and motives, they will find that their service is actually to satiate a need in their own heart more than it is to do something for somebody else. They cannot see themselves ever expending an effort in an area where there is no personal benefit for them. It wasn't about skill, it was about willingness to work. And then in verse 5, as I pointed out, as the Tekoites repaired, God, as He is inspiring Nehemiah to write this down, He puts this in there. Their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. One commentator said this. Did you know that God records goof-offs too? And that's a fact. It's not just that God says, I looked down and I saw this task. And Nehemiah, I inspire you to pin these words that will be remembered for all time. These individuals who you will have trouble saying their name but I saw their effort even in the obscure things. I also want you to take note that the nobles of the Tekoites, they didn't work at all. It is an encouraging thing to realize that God pays attention to the work that we do. In the New Testament, Jesus will teach us that if we will even offer a cup of cold water to one of His, He will not forget that we have done that deed. It is encouraging for us to realize in Romans chapter 16 that the Apostle Paul is telling us about all of these individuals who otherwise we would not be aware of who helped in the building of local churches. And here we're learning the names of the builders on the wall. If it encourages us to remember that God doesn't forget even obscure acts, shouldn't it then sober us to realize that He also pins down when we do nothing at all? 
Shouldn't it also bring in severity to the reality that when we goof off or when we spectate or when we do not participate, God takes note of that. I'm encouraged that the bulk of this chapter, other than the nobles of the Tekoites, are people who got on board with what was going on. But it wasn't just that willing builders worked. I note this, willing builders worked together. All through this chapter, as I referenced in the first few verses, you read that phrase, next to them, next to him. I think it's interesting that in the first verse, Nehemiah starts with the priests. Look what he said there. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Maya. And you think to yourself, what in the world? Maya, Hananiel, sheep gate. Now, I don't want to take for granted that everybody understands what it is that Nehemiah is talking about. Nehemiah is talking about the actual wall of Jerusalem. And around the wall of Jerusalem to fortify the city, there were gates. Each of the gates took on a different name, and a lot of times it was for commerce that went in and out, or for the particular use of that gate, or maybe it was where it faced. And the priests here in verse 1 were laboring on the sheep gate. Just outside of the sheep gate in the Judean hillside, the flocks were kept of the little lambs and sheep that would be brought into the temple for sacrifice. And they would always pass through the sheep gate. And so we already discern, this is not incidental. Remember, after four months of praying and four months of planning, Nehemiah is enacting what God wants from him. And God wanted the high priests and the priests to be working on the sheep gate. Little do they realize that 400 years from this moment in time, Jesus Christ is going to be gathered in the upper room with the disciples. He is going to share with them encouragement, and he's going to leave the upper room, and he's going to go out into the garden of Gethsemane, where he will pray in agony. As Jesus leaves the upper room and goes out to the garden of Gethsemane to pray, do you know what gate Jesus passes through? He passes through the sheep gate. And as Jesus is arrested in the garden and brought back into the city of Jerusalem to go before the Sanhedrin and Annas and Caiaphas, where he will be mocked and he will be tried and he will be beaten, ultimately crucified, do you know the gate that Jesus passes back through? It's the sheep gate. The last lamb that would ever need to be sacrificed for sin completely fulfills every facet of the scriptural prophecy and law as he passes through the sheep gate. And here's what I understand. God strategically placed the high priest there to build the sheep gate and to sanctify it. Not realizing in that moment that 400 years forward, Jesus would pass through sacrifice one time for all sin, never to need a sacrifice again. Do you comprehend then this? It's not an incident, nor is it an accident, that you are on the wall where you are. Strategically, God has put you in the office that he has put you in. Strategically and sovereignly, in spite of our choices and in spite of all of our circumstances, God has us right here and right now. 
And we may question why we're here, and we may wonder what we're doing, but what we cannot do is ever stop working on our portion of the wall because God has us here and now for a purpose. Your neighborhood, your office, your home, your kid's classroom, the classroom you are in as a kid, the team that you are on, it's not an accident. God has you strategically placed and gifted in that moment and spot to do His work. And everyone did their part. I love what we read in verse 8. Next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths. He was a jeweler. Next unto him also repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the apothecaries. He was a perfume maker. You realize they didn't take a lot of baths and showers regularly, right? And so you had to have like oils and such on you and perfumes so that you didn't gag everybody that was around you. And so the apothecaries were quite active. And then we note this. They fortified Jerusalem under the broad wall, and next unto them repaired Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. We can discern that he's of a royal caste. He's a politician. He rules half the part of Jerusalem. And in one or two verses, we've just read of a jeweler working next to a perfume maker, working next to a politician, and they were all productive in the work of God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a politician doing anything productive, much less joining in this mega construction project? It's not about what their gifting was. It was about their willingness to work together because everyone was gifted differently. Not everyone was gifted equally. Not everyone was specifically gifted in building, but they worked together restoring the breaches. It also indicates that they had other lives, that they had other tasks, that they had other jobs, and they had to step away from their profession to get into the work that God was doing. And the profession that they had was not an excuse to not be involved in the work that God wanted them to do. All of them working together. And then I see humanity come through. And I find myself, because here are the moments that I would have wrestled with. I know that some people worked harder than others. Verse 11 and 19, 21, 24, 27, and 30. There's an interesting phrase in there. It says something along these lines. They repaired another piece. They did the job that they were asked to do. And then, can you imagine... They did more than they were even asked to do. They were not conscripted, remember. They were not compensated. But they worked and they did more than they were even assigned to do. Some people did more work than other people. I note this as we arrive at verse 14. Some people worked in more difficult places than other people worked. Here's verse 14. But the dung gate... How many of you really need that one broken down for you? But the dung gate repaired Malchiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the part of Bethacarim. He built it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. The dung gate is exactly what you think it is. And we're not even talking, mind you, about medieval-type plumbing in ancient Jerusalem, but stuff had to be taken 
out of the city. And garbage had to be taken out of the city. And it had to be burned down in the valley. And if you've ever been around burning trash, it is not pleasant. And if you have one of those neighbors that likes organic treatment on their yard and they put out chicken manure to fertilize their grass and you've stepped outside, you've thought, what in the world? That's what it smelled like at the dung gate. Now, the correlation to the nursery ministry in the church is such low-hanging fruit that it doesn't need to be said. But if there was a dung gate to the church, it's down there. And we do need people that work in the dung gate, and then we need people to carry it out. I am not called to dung gate ministry. I know this. Here's where I'm called. Are you ready for this? Verse 14, we have a member from a royal family working at the dung gate. It stunk. That's no two ways about it. In the very next verse, just listen to verse 15. But the gate of the fountain, it already sounds better, repaired Shalon, the son of Kalhoza, the ruler of the part of Mizpah. He built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Siloah by the king's garden and under the stairs that go down from the city of David. That means somebody was working by the garbage dump and somebody else was assigned the fountain gate by the pool of Siloah near the king's garden where the steps go down out of David's city. And I ask you this, is it fair to get assigned the dung gate when the fountain gate is there? And here's God's answer. Fair doesn't matter. Calling does. Fair doesn't matter. Gifting does. Here is a fact. A church will cease to succeed in doing the work of God when everybody has to do the fountain gate work. The work of God will cease to go forward when we refuse to do dung gate kind of work. And the principle that we derive from this as we simply study the workers is facts are facts. Some people worked harder than other people. And some people worked in harder places than other people worked. And then we get to verse 20, and it is the only time in the entire chapter where we are forced to see how somebody worked. To see their attitude or their spirit. Verse 20 says, After him, Baruch the son of Zabbai earnestly repaired the other piece. And the word simply means to burn or to glow. I mean Baruch didn't just work. Baruch was the kind of guy that drives you nuts. Hey Baruch, chill out. You are making the rest of us look bad because you are really going after it. Baruch was the kind of guy that when the wall work shift started at 6 o'clock in the morning, you wanted him to give the pep talk, not me. I'm not the positive guy that Baruch was. I'm the guy staring into my coffee cup thinking, I hate the wall. I hate being here. And then about halfway through his pep talk, I start thinking, and I hate Baruch. Are you even real? You're telling me you're you're back to earnestly repair again? You always have to be earnest about your work. And here's what I understand. We got to have Baruch. 
We have to have some people who will work harder than others because the nobles of the Tekoites, they're also on the team. And we have to have some people who are willing to go work at the dung gate and some that are willing to work at the gate of the fountain. Some people have to endure the stench and pull out the rubble and the trash while other people work near the king's garden because all of the wall needs repaired. And we have to have a few guys who are in there and earnest about it. And it also helps me to understand that God sees our heart and our passion and our motivation just the same. He doesn't overlook any act that we do. Willing builders work together with their hearts in it. I'll skip ahead to chapter 4 and and just steal one verse from that chapter. In verse 6 it says, So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Literally, that means their heart was in the work. They put their hearts into the work. And the original is incredibly emphatic. Where the heart is engaged, the work of God goes well. Where people are just doing it because they have to do it. Or people are coerced to do it. Or work is not done. The work of God goes poorly. When people's hearts are in it, the work of God goes well. That's why we have to begin the study in chapter 1 and verse 1. Where Nehemiah's heart is broken with a burden. And he fasts and he prays and he mourns and he weeps for four months before God miraculously provides. And when he gets to the city, he takes three more days to pray and plan and assess. And when he gives the speech, he tells the people, you're not doing this for me. You're not even doing this for future generations. It is our moment to step up in God's work. We're doing this for God. And it takes everybody. And it takes dung gate builders and fountain gate builders. It takes hard workers and it takes a few lazy people to move just a few stones. It takes everybody tackling their strategic portion of the wall to get it done with their hearts in it. And you know what I realize? The perfume guy probably wasn't really great at wall building. That's what my mind tells me. When you say perfume guy, wall builder, do you agree with me? It probably wasn't great. But I would venture to say that somewhere along the wall, there was somebody who was really good at it, and he would encourage the guy who was during the day or on his day off from wall building, mixing together oils for perfumes in how to get it done. I would also venture to say that in some of the places where people were just asked to repair the wall and others where it was completely starting from scratch, there were a few days that somebody had to shift off their portion of the wall to help move a few rocks And maybe it was such that on this particular day, some of the rocks that they were moving were just too heavy for them to move. And they needed some people to come in from the outside and just help them move some of the heavy rocks. And they didn't hold it against each other. We don't read in here that those who worked harder than others turned back and pointed their finger and made fun of those who weren't working as hard. They just understood the day will probably come where I need help moving a few rocks. And we realize that in the New Testament, we're encouraged to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because the day of the Lord is approaching. We have to exhort each other and so much the more unto good works as we see the day approaching. You and I should be cheerleaders for each other. 
You're running your race and I'm running mine. I'm not accountable for running your course and you not mine, but I am accountable for encouraging you on your way. I am accountable for the piece of the wall that God has given to me. I'm not really accountable for yours, but I don't have to turn and snipe and I don't have to take rocks from your pile and I don't have to point my finger at you when you need a little help to pick up a rock that's too heavy for you on that day. Willing builders work together with their heart in it. I read a story recently, kind of challenges our cultural mindset. It really drives home this thought for me. It was intriguing. There was a Western missionary, and this was some time ago. He was working in the Philippine Islands, and he was on a rather remote island. And to pass time, he set up a croquet game in his front yard. He was playing around with the croquet game and several of the native neighbors became interested in what he was doing and so the missionary explained the rules to the natives that had come over and he gave each one of them a mallet and a ball and he got them going. As the game progressed and he was kind of coaching them through, a moment came where one of the players could take advantage of the other by knocking his ball off the court and the missionary explained the procedure but his advice puzzled his friend, the native looked back at him and said, why would I want to knock his ball out of the court? He said, well, so you'll win the game. You want to knock his ball out, and you'll win the game. As he explained that to him, the short little native clad there in rags shook his head in bewilderment. For in their hunting and gathering society, he could not fathom, not sharing in the win. As the game continued, absolutely no one followed the missionary's advice. When a player successfully got his ball through all of the wickets, the game was not over for him because he would then turn and he would go back and he would coach the other to the finish line. And when his ball got through all the wickets, he would go back and they would join in again and again until everybody got all of their balls through all of the wickets. And when that happened, they stood there and they shouted together, We won! We won! And the missionary with a Western mindset thought, no, you didn't. You all lose, losers. Do you realize that should be the mentality of the church? When one member scores a point, it's a point for the whole team. When things go well for you, things go well for me. Don't you realize the principle of Scripture? We rejoice with them that do rejoice. Why? Because we're all family. And we weep with them that do weep. Why? Because we're all family. And no one on the face of the earth should ever circle the wagon any better than God's church. And no one should ever lack for encouragement when they're in the family. And if they do, it's because we're not doing our part on the wall. And our motivation cannot be for ourselves. We can't only serve when we derive personal benefit. This isn't about me, and it's not about you. And we're not even striving for the next generation to have a little more than we had. All we're doing is taking advantage of the moment that God has given us. And it's my time on the wall. Do you just attend church, or is your heart in the work that God is doing in the body of believers? You know what else I find Stop worrying about what's happening on the wall around you and build your peace. That's the hardest part for me. Stop worrying about what's going on the wall around you. Hey, how come that guy doesn't build like I build? How come that guy, how come that guy took lunch now 
How come they're not? How come they're going slower? How come they're going faster? How come I have to get the dung gate and you get the fountain gate? Stop worrying about what's going on the wall around you and build your peace. You're accountable for what you build. The work of God is often ordinary and mundane in its appearance. But we can't see the whole thing. You know what they don't teach you in seminary? That there are as many Tuesdays in a week as there are Sundays. And the work of God is often mundane and ordinary. And we think to ourselves, really the work of God needs to be big and public. And I'll be honest, in weeks such as this one in our church, do you know what the work of God looked like? A lot of chair moving, vacuum running, umbrella carrying, and car driving. And here's what we think to ourselves. Well, it's a caste system and... You know, I'm with, no, 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 no. We never see the whole. But if you don't move a chair and serve a meal and carry an umbrella and, and shuttle a car, and if, if you don't shift a seat and go to overflow, and if you don't work in the sound, and if we don't have a little bit of help around to clean the building, here, here's the thing. We never see the whole wall. All we see is our portion. But if we don't work on our portion where we've been strategically placed, then the whole thing never gets done. And if the whole wall is built, but the dung gate is left undone, we have a breach in the wall, and we are always in danger, and we are never fortified, and we are never safe, and the work is never complete. You and I must be willing builders who work together with our hearts in it so that the work of God can be done. Peter wrote in the New Testament, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Would you bow your heads, please, for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is gracewaycharlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.